Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Welcome to the Regulatory Policy Seminar. I'm Joe Aldi, the faculty chair of the Regulatory Policy Program. We're thrilled to have our longtime friend and colleague Jonathan Wiener here with us. Uh, Jonathan has spoken in the seminar series before um, because he is one of the leading experts on regulatory policy. He's worn many hats over the years that have helped inform his <coughs> scholarship in regulatory policy. So in the government, he worked at the Department of Justice, in the Environment Division, worked at the Council of Economic Advisors, and worked at the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Uh, while he is a professor of law, the Perkins Professor of Law at Duke, he also has appointments at the Nicholas School of the Environment and the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Uh, he has served as the president of the Society for Risk Analysis. So here's someone who, while trained as a lawyer here at Harvard Law, uh, you know, worked as a uh, <coughs> clerk for then appellate judge Stephen Breyer. Uh, but as a lawyer, plays in a world that engages economists, including at, uh, at the Council of Economic Advisors, where he was a rare person to hold the appointment of a senior economist, while not actually being formerly a PhD economist, and working at places like the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and for that matter, being, I think, the only lawyer or law professor to serve as the president of the Society for Risk Analysis. Uh, so today, uh, he is going to share some work uh, where I think he would love our feedback. After he makes his presentation, because this is work that is still very much in progress, Jordan and Lori have here to think about how to design adaptive uh, regulatory policies. Jonathan, welcome back to the seminar. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Joe. Thank you, everyone, for coming. It's really great to be here. I'm always really grateful to uh, be invited to come here and to um, learn from you, with you. Um, I hope to get the, the topic of this paper is about learning. I hope to get some learning from this uh, exercise today. And thank you, Joe, for a really kind introduction, which kind of suggests I've been trying to learn a lot about other disciplines, or maybe I've been making errors in all of those in all of those ventures. So this is about um, uh, adaptive regulation, instrument choice for policy learning uh, over time. And it's partly based on collaborations with some colleagues, multidisciplinary colleagues at Duke, including Ed Ballison in the history department, uh, Laurie Benier in environmental economics, uh, Kim Kravick, who's a law and a corporate law professor, and Daniel Rivera, who is our PhD student. Uh, and it draws mainly on two uh, publications. One is a book that we published just over a year ago called Policy Shock, which I'll talk a little bit about, which is about the potential for learning from surprise, from crisis events. And the second is this paper that we have distributed today that Laurie Benier and I are writing. Um, in the paper itself is an adaptive iterative process of, about adaptive regulation. So the motivation for this is, is thinking about instrument choice. How do we design policy? And then what are the dimensions over which instruments can vary uh, or which, over which instruments can offer flexibility or the opportunity for learning? So I kind of think about this as dimensions of design. Here's apartment 1D, apartment 2D, and apartment 3D. Which one would you like to live in? Uh, and actually where we want to go with this is to apartment 4D. Uh, where there may be another dimension, a fourth dimension, the dimension of time, in, over which uh, the design can 
uh, can vary or can be updated. So we already have a large literature uh, on instrument choice across a number of these dimensions. So uh, as a kind of simplifying um, uh, explanatory device that does not capture all of this literature, but just consider the range of flexibility for regulated entities in uh, instrument choice from a kind of one-dimensional, where the government just says, this is what you must do, no flexibility, classic or uh, caricature of command and control technology-based regulation, to uh, two-dimensional, where the government says, you must meet this performance standard, but there's flexibility to the regulated entity and the methods of compliance uh, in how it achieves that performance standard. Three-dimensional adds the spatial dimension of flexibility across locations in the uh, degree of abatement, so through something like a cap-and-trade system or perhaps a, a tax. And of course, cap-and-trade and taxes also would allow the 2D how flexibility in the method of abatement. And then adding a fourth dimension is adding temporal flexibility by for example, allowing regulated entities to bank or borrow allowances across periods uh, over time. So we already have a very large and sophisticated literature about these kinds of questions. So we are now trying to investigate a kind of um, counterpart or parallel question, which is the dimensions of adaptivity by the regulator. So you might also can think of uh, that in four dimensions from one-dimensional static where the regulator, once adopting the policy, can never change it uh, at an extreme imaginary end of the spectrum. And then adding in additional degrees of uh, opportunity for learning and change. So sort of a 2D version would be learning from experimentation with different methods of policy a 3D version would be learning from spatial variation in policies, for example, by studying uh, the observed variation of policies across jurisdictions, what Justice Brandeis called the laboratory of democracy or federalism. Uh, and of course, we have an enormous literature on policy learning across, across space, across jurisdictions, policy diffusion, policy transfer, uh, legal borrowing. This comes under many different names. Um, and then what we're interested here in this paper is this fourth dimension of adaptivity by regulators, which is learning from experience and updating policy over time. I want to highlight that I'm not trying to suggest here that these are, are only applicable to the counterpart over here, right? So policy updating over time or learning from spatial variation policies uh, across jurisdictions could apply to um, all of the other uh, types of policies, rigid or flexible, as they may be. Um, okay, so we're focusing on this um, learning uh, over time, experiencing uh, outcomes and updating policies. So imagine this spectrum from uh, perfectly static to <coughs> perfectly adaptive. At the perfectly static end, the policy once adopted is fixed forever. <clears throat> and while that seems unrealistic, consider just how long in a, in a world of policy gridlock or at different levels of institutional 
decision making, it may take a very long time to change a policy once it's adopted. Uh, uh, amending the Constitution may take an extremely long time. Uh, even statutory change can take decades. Regulatory change, that is rulemaking change by agencies, uh, can take years. So those are, those are uh, arrayed on this range of uh, toward the static end. Perfectly adaptive would be instantaneously responding to new information. It's sort of akin to the efficient markets hypothesis that markets might instantaneously adapt to every iota of new information. And there's a very nice book by Andrew Lowe at MIT uh, on adaptive markets last year, in which he tries to um, uh, analyze and critique that efficient markets hypothesis through the lens of behavioral psychology and heuristics, looking at how people actually uh, think about, in markets, think about new information. So somewhere in, the, in, in between these two extremes are, is the range of uh, real-world possibilities for uh, adaptive policy. And what we're trying to think through here in this policy, in, in this paper, which is very much of a, a think exercise, this paper, is how, what are the best ways to uh, try to be more adaptive, um, recognizing that there are multiple options for being more adaptive, that, that is, adaptive regulation is not just one thing. That's kind of the, uh, the first major point of the paper, is that there are multiple instrument choices for adaptive learning over time. And a second point is that there are different pros and cons of these different instrument choices, so there may be trade-offs in, in uh, selecting different instruments for adaptive learning over time. Just to give a couple of examples of the static to adaptive um, uh, framework, uh, just consider, for example, the National Academy of Sciences recommendations to federal regulatory agencies in 1983 about how to design risk assessment and risk management. So this is a classic diagram from the National Academy Red Book in 1983 that's uh, uh, shortly after the Supreme Court had issued uh, an important decision called the Benzene case telling agencies you have to show your risk assessment, you have to show your work uh, and before you can um, regulate more stringently. And so the National Academy said, here are the key elements of risk assessment, hazard identification, dose response assessment, exposure assessment, those combine into a risk characterization, which is then uh, communicated to decision makers, and here are all, all sorts of factors that should go into the decision. But one thing that's notable about this diagram, there's a lot of good uh, content in this diagram, but one thing that's notable about it is that after the decision is made, there's nothing. There's no follow-up evaluation. There's no monitoring of what the outcomes were of the performance of the of the decision. So there's no, there's no recursive cycle here uh, in this diagram. So it implies a kind of static uh, assumption, or at least it's it's implicit or unstated what the possible follow-up uh, might be. Com contrast that to um, about 15 years later. Uh, Congress established a special um, commission on risk assessment and management, which issued a report in 1997, and this was their diagram of that same question. And what's, what's interesting here is that now it's a circle, it's a cycle, with evaluation, so starting, let's say, with problem, risks, options, uh, so those are like the instrument choices 
for how to regulate decisions, and then eventually evaluation, which uh, continues in a loop. Now, I'm not saying this describes actual regulation. I'm saying this is recommendation from this commission about how to take a more um, <clears throat> adaptive approach. And then uh, a very recent example is the National Academy uh, panel report on the social cost of carbon, which has this nice diagram in it. Um, so the social cost of carbon, an estimate of the marginal damage from emitting a ton of uh, carbon dioxide, could also be applied to other greenhouse gases, uh, different estimates for each. And then the use of that, uh, that estimate in federal regulatory policy decision-making has been quite controversial between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, significant change in the way they're estimating the social cost of carbon. But what I'm, what I'm uh, interested here in this diagram is the National Academy panel report suggesting that this process also be uh, a repeated cycle, an iterative, adaptive approach with an interagency process that generates a first draft, that's put out for public notice and comment, then an independent scientific assessment, and then recommendations for improvement, and that is repeated. Uh, the report suggests every five years the social cost of carbon should be reviewed through this kind of adaptive process. So at least, at least in our aspirations, the, these diagrams have moved somewhat more towards adaptive policy learning. I'm sure there are also much older examples of uh, uh, of scholars advocating adaptive policy approaches. Now, this is not to say that um, adaptive policymaking is always the best thing. There are costs as well as, as gains from moving towards a more adaptive approach. And that's part of what makes the instrument choice question interesting, that it's, it's not um, uh, always a simple, it's not a no-brainer, it's not always an obvious uh, decision to try to make the policy process more adaptive. So here are some of the pros and cons. And one of the um, questions I would be eager to discuss with you or hope to get some feedback on is, are we identifying the full set or the, the, um, the uh, uh, most important of the pros and cons for moving towards from, from static towards adaptive? So here are some of the benefits. One is uh, overcoming the kind of heuristic errors that people may, may make that are uh, excessively status quo biased. So loss aversion, where, they, where people are more concerned about losing their current assets than about gaining an equivalent benefit, or uh, single action bias, where people confronted with a large and complex problem uh, often think, let's do one thing, and that, that will be my contribution to that problem, and then they don't address... Uh, the rest of it. So they're worried about the global environment. They say, well, I took out the recycling. Um, uh, that may also play a role in government policymaking. There may be a kind of single action bias. We've, we've, done, we've checked that box, and so we don't follow up, follow up to evaluate and iterate. The second pro here is the uh, bigger and more, uh, more direct one, which is improving the policy over time. That is, if a policy is static, and yet the world changes, then that static policy will, over time, accumulate mismatches with the real conditions in the world and may generate uh, increasing errors. Those may be errors of over-regulation, of a desirable 
uh, technology, let's say, or they may be under regulation of an undesirable technology. They may be adverse side effects, risk risk trade-offs, other kinds of errors. So the, the um, major advantage of an adaptive approach is to try to reduce those errors, improve the net benefits of the policy over time. And that may be especially valuable where the world is changing rapidly or significantly, where there's new technological change, new science, or social values are changing, social conditions, demographics, uh, etc., changing significantly. And so one in implication of this uh, point is that moving towards a more adaptive policy approach, which is not free, which is not costless, may be especially desirable where we anticipate uh, significant change in the future or where we anticipate significant learning that, that, for example, automated vehicles are going to, we're going to learn a lot more about their performance and their capabilities and their uh, downsides in the future and also in many different real world settings. So we may want to build in from the beginning a learning process to adapt policy uh, over time. That would just be one, one kind of example. Uh, related advantages of an adaptive process may be that to the extent that the st more static policies generate public frustration with the m mismatch uh, as the world changes, that the adaptive process may reduce that frustration, may offer more opportunity for public input, for public participation. If there's an iterative uh, evaluation and follow-up and uh, reconsideration process. And uh, one, then we're also trying to think about what the impacts are of, of um, the expectation of an adaptive process for ex-ante policymaking, the political economy of ex-ante policymaking. So one possible uh, implication is that if uh, interest groups, for example, um, anticipate that the policy will be more adaptive, more open to review and revision in the future, that may actually make it easier for them to agree to a policy ex ante because they know they'll get additional chances to uh, debate it. Um, that's a hypothesis. Uh, you know, we, we, should, we should try to um, uh, study that empirically, but that's, that's a possibility. Okay, then on the con side, obviously there's the cost of collecting a lot of data. Uh, of monitoring results. Um, we might get a lot of benefit from, from collecting those data, but we have to recognize the costs. And I mentioned the word sludge here. Cass Sunstein has a new paper called Sludge and Ordeals, which is about how burdensome uh, paperwork and data collection requirements can be on public access to all sorts of benefits, civil rights, um, many other uh, things we would like. So we shouldn't take lightly the, the cost of the data collection itself. Then there's the cost of the analysis and decision. And this may be a cost especially borne by agencies in the having to revisit. And busy agencies may be reluctant to do so. But we should really think about that as the opportunity cost of what the agency would have done uh, otherwise with its time. Maybe you think that's a good thing. Uh, but um, we should at least recognize that the analysis and decision time put into the adaptive iterative process is, has some opportunity cost with other things that could have been done with that time. Then a third point here is moving towards a more adaptive approach may mean that the policy it becomes more unstable, and that instability itself is costly to society, costly to regulated actors who are unsure about what 
their investments, or they may have to purchase insurance against the risk of policy change. Um, and it may also erode the credibility of the policy commitment. Uh, if people think, oh, well, this policy having been adopted today is not really a credible commitment to a long-term um, rule, then that may, one kind of um, political economy result may be eroding compliance. Um, so trying to think about these pros and cons, uh, there may be others here, and that would be important for us to try to take account of uh, other factors that we have not yet mentioned. So how best should we then pursue adaptive learning? So a first point is there are pros and cons. It's not always a clear-cut case, and those pros and cons may vary with different instrument choice. So there may be trade-offs in choosing among these different instruments. So here are some of the possible instruments uh, for moving towards a more adaptive approach. I mentioned earlier learning from experimentation and learning from variation across jurisdictions, not to forget those. Then here are some additional. So one is a kind of unplanned adaptive, unplanned but yet capable of changing in response to new information, in this case in response to a crisis or a shock, a bad surprise. And in our book, Policy Shock, we looked at uh, at least two um, institutional options for doing so. One is the ad hoc commission of inquiry, like the 9-11 commission or the BP Deepwater Horizon Spill Inquiry Commission. And a second is a standing safety board that has a uh, ongoing, permanent life. It's not just established ad hoc for that one crisis. Uh, and so it has a standing staff expertise and institutional memory. That's like the National Transportation Safety Board or the Dutch Safety Board. Um, there's been a lot of interest in, in recent years in retrospective review of regulation or ex post impact assessment. Um, actually, presidents of the United States have asked for retrospective review for decades. Jimmy Carter had an executive order asking for <coughs> retrospective review of existing policies. Bill Clinton, in his executive order 12866, <coughs> Section 5 asks for retrospective review. Seems like not much happened in response to those. Barack Obama, in Executive Order 13563, called for retrospective review, and the Office of Management and Budget put much more effort into asking agencies to do so. I'll say a little bit more about retrospective review um, in, uh, in a few minutes. This is also related to the Trump uh, administration, Executive Order 13771, which calls for a kind of regulatory cost offset process where new regulations would have to be have the costs of old regulations reduced to offset the cost of the new regulations. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. Okay, adaptive licensing of products to subpopulations. So the basic idea here is where the government has to give pre-market approval uh, for a new product like a pharmaceutical drug or um, maybe um, maybe automated vehicles, maybe something else, that instead of giving a one-time decision that says yes for everyone or no for everyone, maybe the government should take an adaptive licensing appro approach that says yes for this subpopulation, which we think is the most uh, in need of this product, and then we'll study the results there. So it's a kind of, it's a kind of bigger clinical trial, in effect, or it's a post-approval post market surveillance uh, addition to clinical trials to... Um, make the product available to those who are especially in need of it, but also study results before it's available to everyone else. And I should note that uh, Ken Oi at, at 
MIT and Hans Georg Eichler at the European Medicines Agency and Arthur Peterson at University of College London have, are doing a lot of work on this topic. So then planned adaptive regulation. So this is going beyond these approaches to say, what if, we what if the regulation is built to learn from the beginning? So we plan that when we adopt the regulation, it will include a system of monitoring, data collection and analysis, and, and regular periodic review. And we see features of that in some real-world um, examples. For example, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, NACs, under the Clean Air Act, have statutory provision requiring review every five years, a special committee, CASAC, set up to conduct that review. Um, the new um, Toxic Substances Control Act amendments of 2016, the Lautenberg Chemical Safety Act, has in it, buried deep down in the details, a provision requiring review every five years. There are, there are other federal laws that um, sometimes ask for that kind of <clears throat> periodic review. Um, <clears throat> Now, and one feature that we uh, highlight in, the, in our paper is a choice between discretionary versus automated um, planned adaptive regulation. So discretionary would mean, for example, there's a committee which reviews new information, has the discretion to make adjustments. Think of the Federal Reserve Board's Open Markets Committee, which meets periodically and can adjust interest rates. Um, or the CASAC committee advising EPA on the NACs. Uh, on the other hand, there might be automated um, adaptive regulation. Uh, an example with which we're familiar is preset indicator variable triggers that say if this variable in the future exceeds or uh, this some trigger level, then the policy will automatically adjust. So that an example of that is a price ceiling or a price floor in the cap-and-trade market, where if the market price for allowances exceeds or falls below that price, then the policy changes to sell more or allowances or buy back allowances, uh, something like that. But automated planned adaptive regulation could go further, and there's already um, an emerging literature on artificial intelligence for adaptive regulation. Uh, machine learning, or our <clears throat> colleague Carrie Colonizzi has an article called Regulation by Robot. And the idea here is that we could design algorithms that are multivariate, not just one trigger variable, but multiple variables um, based on uh, big data collection and analysis. So that raises questions about um, what the algorithm says and whether the results are explainable uh, whether they could be accountable in some way to courts or to, uh, to uh, legislatures, executive branch, oversight to the public. Um, but that, that is uh, well in view on the horizon to have more um, automated adaptive regulation in some contexts. <clears throat> okay, so let me just say a little bit about policy shock and then about adaptive regulation and the trade-offs among the, uh, these different instruments. Um, <clears throat> so in the, in the book, Policy Shock, we were trying to study the question, when there's a crisis, how do regulators respond? And, and can they do better at learning from the crisis? So this is a 
what we're calling unplanned adaptive regulation. No, no initial plan for monitoring, no initial plan for ever revising the policy. But then the crisis is sort of endogenously defined as something sufficiently um, uh, surprising and worrisome that it generates uh, <clears throat> calls for reform. It's, this is a kind of um, um, uh, very familiar uh, claim, almost an offhand comment in lots of uh, literature and uh, discourse about regulation that a lot of regulation is crisis driven and that crises tend to induce regula uh, regulatory change. Uh, but it, that's actually a good open empirical question. It, um, it would require studying some universe of crises then to see whether they are followed by what type of regulatory change. Uh, there's a paper by Matt Kahn saying, hold on, not always, uh, identifying several examples where major events did not yield policy change. And that raises questions about how the event is characterized at the time. And in our book, we talk a good, a good deal about the narrative of the crisis and the contested narrative of the crisis. When something happens, it's not self-evident that it is a crisis and that it demands regulatory change. That is itself a, a point of contestation among interest groups and advocates. So uh, we recognize that this does not always happen. And what we were trying to study then was when there is some response, what kind of response, how does it vary? And uh, we looked at three major case studies, oil spills. Um, uh, there's the BP Deepwater Horizon accident. Uh, nuclear power accidents, there's uh, the Fukushima site, uh, Daiichi site, and then uh, financial crashes like the 2008 financial crisis. And we, um, so here's the book. We had a series of conceptual chapters uh, from different disciplinary perspectives, then the three case study clusters with multiple chapters about each case study, not only in the United States, but also in Europe and Japan over several decades. And what we were trying to see was um, when these kinds of events occur, how do regulators respond? And really what we were trying to see was how varied the, the types of regulatory responses were. And um, I'll just skip this slide very quickly. Here's, here's the punchline of this point. The, the simple model is crisis-driven policy change. The reality that we found in our case studies, which are not a um, universal representative sample of, or representative of the, of the full universe, but just in our case studies, what we find is a lot of variation in the types of policy change, uh, not just one kind of policy change. Sometimes heads will roll, personnel changes. Sometimes the policy instrument is changed. Sometimes the stringency of standards is changed, or the penalties for noncompliance are changed, or the monitoring requirements are changed. Sometimes the agencies are reorganized. Sometimes the agencies are merged, like after September 11th, Department of Homeland Security was created by merging many other agencies. Sometimes they're split up after BP Deepwater Horizon. Part of the Department of Interior was divided. Um, so what we find is a much more complicated uh, relationship that the different attributes of the crisis associated with or, or in, the, in the presence of different uh, mediating factors and different political and social context can yield different types of policy change. Um, do we actually learn from these crisis events? And, the, and a persistent problem or a persistent um, question is whether the 
whether the bad event we've just observed is was already in the distribution of risk that we had anticipated ex ante and is just the bad draw that happened, or whether it's information that we need to um, change the our, the distribution of risk that we and that's um, something that that uh, institutions then debate and work through um, over time. So we generated a bunch of hypotheses about crises and, and policy change. I think I'll skip these for now, but uh, these are sort of um, invitations for further work on whether particular attributes of the crisis or particular framing of the narrative about the crisis are more associated with different kinds of policy change uh, subsequent. <clears throat> the key point I want to turn to is this last point, preparing institutions to learn from the crisis. So we distinguish in the book learning to prepare for crises, to be resilient, to prevent, to be, to be able to recover, versus preparing to learn from the crisis. And we think both are important. What we're suggesting is that we can do more on the preparing to learn um, and more than we have in the past. And um, that means uh, trying to design institutions to be ready so that when a bad surprise happens, uh, we can make sense of, the, of that event, try to diagnose the causes, and recommend better policy options. So we look at different kinds of crisis investigation bodies. One option is the regulatory agency itself could investigate the crisis. Uh, that agency has a lot of expertise. On the other hand, it may be very busy, including responding to the crisis to try to remediate. And also there's questions about candor. That is, the regulator may be inhibited in criticizing its own past policies. So there may be some advantage in having independent investigation body. The inspectors general in many federal agencies could play some of that role and sometimes do. They have a kind of quasi, they're in the agency but quasi-independent. A second option is, as I mentioned, commissions of inquiry like 9-11 or Deepwater Horizon. Uh, and the commissions of inquiry um, often play a major role, but they start from scratch. They don't have institutional history. Uh, they don't have standing staff. So they have to investigate um, uh, anew. And so then the standing investigation body, or sometimes called safety board, we think has some advantages. Uh, and we looked in the book at the NTSB and also the Chemical Safety Board and the uh, oops, and the Dutch Safety Board. Uh, one interesting difference here is the NTSB and the CSB in the United States are sector-specific, whereas the Dutch Safety Board has purview over pretty much any kind of, uh, of uh, accident or, or crisis. And there have been some calls to, to borrow uh, or emulate the approach of the NTSB for other types of problems. So um, last point here is the standing investigation bodies have, uh, they have standing expertise, unlike the ad hoc commission, and they also have the advantage of independence and candor. They may have the weakness that they have no authority to implement their policy recommendations. Um, so the uh, ability of the standing safety board to have, to have uh, sophisticated insight and also credibility 
and a relationship with those who do have the authority to make regulatory reforms, uh, that's, those are important. Is anyone listening? Um, okay, so now let me turn to back to the other kinds of planned adaptive regulation, the other instruments that I highlighted earlier, especially where we have dynamic emerging technologies, where we think we're going to learn, they pose both benefits and risks. We may want to have an adaptive iterative process. I've already mentioned here where there's fast pace of change, then we, at high levels of uncertainty, we may expect the net benefits profile to change over time uh, as we learn more about the technology. And so we could have Adaptive regulation that is unplanned, like reacting to surprises, policy shocks, or planned uh, with more monitoring, data analysis, etc. So here are now returning to the question of some of these instrument choices for planned adaptive regulation. As mentioned earlier, retrospective review, ongoing periodic review, sunset clauses. That's a kind of version of uh, periodic review where, where there is a preset trigger for the policy to stop unless a decision is made to renew it, um, discretionary or automated. And what I want to highlight here is some of the trade-offs in designing or selecting among these instruments. So one is um, periodicity or frequency. How frequent should the, should the um, review be? Uh, so this is kind of the flip side of static to adaptive, right? You could think of static as an infinite review period and perfectly adaptive as, a, as an infinitesimal review period. So in between there, there's some optimum, and the optimal frequency may vary for different uh, problems or for different issues where the pace of change in the world is different. How much are we going to learn? So a lot of statutes say every five years. To the extent that real laws address this kind of issue, call for periodic review, they somehow have... have um, plucked five years out of, uh, but so far we, as we found yet, and maybe there's something we haven't found yet, that's completely arbitrary. There's no reason that five years is, is um, the right amount of time for all of these different problems. On the other hand, it seems clear that every 500 years is too long and every five minutes is far too short. So someplace uh, there may be a, a good optimum. And this this question of the optimal frequency and rapidity of review is closely related to the question of discretionary versus automated. Uh, because one of the advantages of automated may be um, that you could have much more frequent review. The algorithm collecting big data may be able to respond almost continuously, whereas a discretionary committee might have take quite a bit of time. On the other hand, the second factor here uh, is the scope or the which variables, which impacts are being considered? What's the richness of, in, of the information base for making the decision to revise the policy? And there, the um, a, first of all, many real-world efforts at retrospective review or planned adaptive regulation have a very constrained information base. They look only at, say, one variable, like the cost of the past regulation, not the benefits, or the health effects of the pollutant, not the full cost and benefits of changing the ambient air quality standard. And, uh, and then this is also relevant to the choice between discretionary and automated because the automated, at least in the sense of preset triggers, may have to be based on um, a constrained set of variables, maybe just one, like the cost of allowances 
in the market rather than a more full benefit cost analysis of the policy change. So um, we also are interested in who conducts the review, you know, the agency, some outside body. This is similar to the question I was mentioning earlier about the investigation bodies. So um, here's the point I was just making about retrospective review and also in the executive order 13771 that calls for new rules have to be have their cost offset by old rules that looking just at one variable like the cost that may lead to mistakes to policy errors and what we ideally would want subject to the cost of analysis and information is to improve the net benefits of the policy not just reduce its costs and also to use the process of retrospective review to improve the accuracy of the ex-ante forecasts uh, which I think is being neglected in the, in the current efforts uh, towards retrospective review in practice. Okay, so here's the perfectly static to perfectly adaptive again, but now I've added a second um, axis here, a vertical axis on the scope of impact to so the richness of information. And then I've very uh, tentatively uh, try to suggest where some of these instrument options may lie on this, uh, on this chart. So here are crisis response with an ad hoc inquiry commission or a standing safety board towards the static end because they, they tend to come into play only after a long time has passed and then there's a big surprise. So they're not, they're not set to uh, review re regularly. And the Standing Safety Board is able to take into account a larger scope of information because of, of its uh, breadth and depth of expertise. Maybe. That's a conjecture. That might, be, that might be some of these inquiry commissions might do a good job of that. And then here's retrospective review, uh, ex post regulatory impact assessment, periodic review, so getting more adaptive, um, and then discretionary adjustment and automated adjustment. I kind of put the automated adjustment a little more, maybe I should have put it even more towards the rapidity of, of uh, adaptive characteristic, but the discretionary adjustment is able to uh, take into account much more information, which may be taking into account more information may be one of the reasons that it's slower. So this is, this is um, uh, what stages of an effort towards trying to identify instrument choices and uh, pros and cons or trade-offs in the uh, performance of these instrument choices for adaptive learning over time. Um, <clears throat> should I say a quick word about adaptive licensing? Here's, here's, the, here's a chart from uh, Ken Oy and others uh, describing the traditional approach, one-time approval, and then after clinical trials, one-time approval of new drugs, and then the drugs are available to the world, or at least to that, to that country, uh, <clears throat> with only partial post-market surveillance. This says observed patients here, and unobserved patients is this huge uh, uh, bubble in the diagram. And then here's the, here's a, one step towards adaptive licensing is to have two decisions instead of one. Each, each vertical dashed line here is a decision point. And so there's clinical trials and then a decision to 
allow uh, partial access to what he calls conditional approval for a limited set of patients who are all observed. And that's the key benefit is to be able to um, learn from the experience with the subpopulation and then make a second decision for everyone else, which could have third and a fourth potentially. And this similar idea for automated vehicles comes from a report from RAND by Nidhi Kalra and colleagues. Here the idea is over time, uh, lives lost due to automobile accidents may be increasing. So this is the cumulative lives lost over time from automobile accidents. And this line is with no automated vehicles. And then the question that the RAND report was asking was, well, how soon should we allow the introduction of automated vehicles? Should we allow them in only when they are nearly perfect, when they're much better than, the, than human drivers? <clears throat> and that would save some lives. But we might be able to save more lives or fewer lives if we introduce them earlier. So what if we introduce automated vehicles earlier when they're better than the average driver, uh, so then we could possibly save an additional wedge of lives. What if we allow introduction even when the automated vehicles are worse than the average driver? Okay, so initially we'll have some losses, there are more losses than we would have had without them, but her argument is, and this is, this is I'm not endorsing it, just to um, illustrate the argument that if we allowed the automated vehicles to be available even earlier, we would have faster learning from the market uh, uh, deployment. And over time, we'd save a larger wedge later. I think there's some counter arguments to this, especially for a technology like automated vehicles. One is that the mixed fleet problem is difficult. If you have combination of both human drivers and automated drivers, uh, automated cars uh, on the road at the same time. That may be um, not, that's not necessarily a reflection of the full safety advantages of a 100% automated fleet. Um, and the second problem is that because of, of uh, human heuristics like the availability heuristic, these few accidents here may be deemed to have outsized importance in so when there's one accident from an automated vehicle, that's big news, even if the same day there were 100 accidents from human drivers. Uh, and so, these, um, so the earlier initial introduction may actually uh, set back the availability of, for, for political reasons, of the um, automated vehicles in the future. So it's an interesting question. Um, okay. Last, just to conclude, last point, we recognize there are limits to learning and to the adaptive capacity. I've already mentioned the cost of data collection, the cost of analysis, the, the concern about instability, I just, uh, and, and credibility. I just want to conclude with one last point, which is there are some kinds of problems where trying to be adaptive, trying to learn over time may be thwarted because the, the kind of risk is so catastrophic that the risk itself would destroy the institutions for learning. So consider a global catastrophic risk like um, a large asteroid hitting the earth or um, 
back contamination of microbial life from outer space that consumes the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, those are problems where we, our ability to learn from trial and error is, uh, is uh, more limited. So those, in a different article um, published a couple of years ago, I've suggested that's actually the kind of problem for which ex-ante precaution is most warranted. It's not because of we're facing uncertainty, it's because we would um, lose the opportunity to learn from experience. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you so much. I would love to hear any uh, questions, comments, suggestions. <clears throat> Great. Thank you, Jonathan. We have um, about 15 minutes because we need to wrap early. Jonathan has to go to the School of Public Health. So uh, I'd like to kick things off with the first question, and then you can pull on other uh, individuals as they raise I should, okay. <clears throat> so, so my question has to do with what I think is implicit in this discussion about choice for the regulators is how much discretion the regulator has. And usually that's going to be a function of the authorities that are granted when we can at least in the U.S. system granted to the regulator from Congress. So, uh, so I'm curious how you think about the potential institutional constraints and what that means about sort of how much a regulator can actually learn and respond. And so like to sort of throw out an right. extreme example, what if a regulator finds that you know, the best way to deal with this pollution problem is to tax it, but Congress doesn't usually delegate tax authority to a regulatory agency. So, so how should we think about the institutional constraints that influence uh, the instrument choice problem in this adaptive context? Right. So, um, so clearly one <clears throat> point, as you say, is there may be uh, limitations on the delegation of authority from, say, a legislature to an agency that even if the agency goes through this kind of plant adaptive approach and identifies a better answer, it may, be, it may lack the legal authority to do that, uh, to, to adopt that better approach. Still, the plant adaptive exercise can be valuable because the agency could recommend back to the legislature, hey, you should, you should adopt this tax, or in your example, or you should give us the authority to adopt the tax, or you implement it. <clears throat> by statute directly. So the information could be valuable even if the agency lacks the legal authority. Um, a second point there is that... A, a quick yeah. on that point. What do we think might be the bureaucratic incentives, though, for the agency? But how, how you might think of this... So, I may think that, well, if in the ideal setting, I'd really like you to give me a new authority here. Right. That may not happen. So do, do I then come out with a recommendation that's like the best possible constrained outcome? Right. And, and um, one way that, that may play out sometimes is that the agency uh, wants to wait for a window of opportunity to make that suggestion when it thinks the cards are, are right. And that could actually itself be after a crisis event. Um, so there's... The, some people tell that, kind of that story about um, CERCLA Superfund law uh, after Love Canal. But, um, yeah, so you're right that the agency may not always have the incentive to recommend a, an authority that it doesn't currently have. I think what does often happen, this is partly through um, legal doctrine called the Chevron Doctrine about agency dis um, deference to agency interpretation of ambiguous statutory wording that agencies, when they do come on upon a better approach to a problem in their view, they may try to say, oh, the statute does give us that authority if we reinterpret that word. Like in the Chevron case itself, the word source in the Clean Air Act, the EPA reinterpreted to allow the bubble and offsetting 
uh, policies, which were not uh, explicitly written into the statutes. Another thing that happens is um, kind of informal under-the-radar changes by the agency. And there's this article last year by Wendy Wagner and colleagues that says, which is called Dynamic Re Regulation, I think. And in their article, they say, actually, a lot of this is happening. Uh, agencies are doing adaptive updating of their policies, um, but they're they are because they are not explicitly authorized to do that. They're doing it under the radar. They're doing it without going through formal notice or, or uh, proper notice and comment rulemaking. They're doing it at the behest of special interests who are asking them, "Could you adjust this policy to help us out?" And so, in a way, they're saying Wendy Wagner's article is in a way saying we don't need formal retrospective review at, required by the White House because, look, the agencies have some flexibility to do this already. On the other hand, I think the article also suggests it might be better if the process were more transparent and more more um, regularized. Um, um, I Just to footnote that some of these issues may come before the Supreme Court in the context of debates over the Chevron doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine, doctrine that may be revised. So the question of whether, does an adaptive approach mean um, giving agencies even more discretion to change policies than we've, we've been familiar with in the past, does that collide with uh, a view that agency discretion has to be limited in order to uh, assure the rule of law, or in order to assure um, political accountability for agency decisions. So I guess I would say maybe we can have planned adaptive regulation that is, ideally it would be expressly authorized so that it is not, um, uh, it's not uh, stretching the zone of of uh, excessive delegation, of standardless. You know, the non-delegation doctrine is about delegation of authority without standards so the uh, without or without limiting principles so the planned adaptive regulation could have limiting principles for the objectives that Congress wants the agency to achieve it could limit the types of instruments um, but still allow some scope for uh, studying performance Can I follow up on that? Kind of sure. level of discretion the operational level of Question. You can have adaptive regulatory policy and you could have adaptive regulatory practice. And the second one doesn't apply to both. Um, most uh, rules, laws don't tell a regulator what to do. They provide them an instrument that they could choose to use uh, when they think it's appropriate. And uh, most of the time, they have a wide range of policy instruments available from criminal law, civil law administrative sanctions, um, advice, guidance, partnership, education, outreach, enforceable undertakings, infringement notices, etc. So uh, the daily reality for regulators is they have a vast range of tools available and they're picking and choosing all the time. If you accept that level of discretion, then they can run experiments. Uh, they can adjust their default preferences for tools. Uh, they can apply them here or there in different geographic areas. They could do an awful lot of the things that you said mm -hmm. um, would contribute to adaptive regulation uh, without any change in the policy. 
Um, and there's no reason to think that what they learn from that kind of lower level experimentation uh, would have to lead to a change in the policy. Um, they could change, uh, actually the, the Haynes Commission in Australia reported on Monday uh, on the misconduct of the Australian banks, which was endemic, um, and their critique of the financial regulators, ASIC and APRA, uh, they chose not to change any government's arrangements. They chose not to change the nature of the law or to take away any instruments. What they recommended mostly um, on regular practice was change your default settings, you know, your, your likelihood to use serious enforcement, particularly against major institutions. So that's kind of acknowledging the discretion and just asking them to make a little bit um, of adjustments. I'd love to hear a little more on how this relates to that level of learning, um, and there is a complexity, um, uh, sort of added complexity if you want to evaluate policies, um, because uh, they could have been implemented, the same policy could be implemented in two jurisdictions, and the regulator could have used quite a different discretionary framework. One's completely mm -hmm. ludicrous, enforce all of the laws all the time, it's an oppressive regime, everybody hates them. Another one is picking and choosing and being intelligent and sensible and using other devices as appropriate. And you're trying to make a judgment about whether this policy is right. You would surely have to take into account um, the way that operational discretion had been used under that policy uh, before you could come to a conclusion. So it's a fascinating and complex yes. uh, subject. I'm sorry we only have an hour. So it's a, a, very, a very fair point that... Um, there are, there are many uh, tools or levers that agencies have at their disposal, and the, I think the way you're using the word policy is referring more to what's the formal rule or the, for, the formal regulatory um, <clears throat> statement. But right, and then you're right that there are many other. I, you know, we could be using the word policy also more broadly to refer to the family of of tools that you've described, but. Uh, quite a good point that there are many different ways that agencies can be adaptive and I think the uh, the article that I just mentioned by Wendy Wagner at all also looks at a variety of those kinds of strategies I think the main thing that I would highlight right now is that uh, it's still an open question whether those changes in what you're calling practice are uh, based on or flow from monitoring and analysis of performance of past practice and so the so if you say we should have planned adaptive practice improvement then we should that would still include some some method for uh, evaluating how it's been working in the past and how it should be changed in the future and that that may also be lacking uh, so yeah so if I had uh, ultimate power in this process uh, what I would want would be control over framing of the question uh, and there's a lot of that in your list that you went through about different ways of framing uh, the problem um, uh, and trying to get the uh, closer to uh, good outcomes by asking the right questions. Um, does, what does your study of adaptation, adaptive methods say about that uh, problem, which improves the framing, the ability to understand what the real issues are and so on? Yes, excellent point. I think our work, the book Policy Shock, does talk about that significantly in the way that um, the what we look back on in hindsight as a crisis was uh, unfolding in real time and it was unclear what was happening or why it was happening, what, what was the cause. And so there's a, 
uh, often a scramble and uh, contested terrain of uh, different people trying to frame the question or frame what is the problem uh, that's happening. But that could also happen in more, um, let's say, um, in quieter times when there's not a, a, a you know nuclear power plant meltdown or a, or an ongoing oil spill gusher uh, happening right then. But so. Um, how the question is framed. Um, I'm wondering whether we need to add to this paper uh, a kind of planned adaptive reframing of the question. Like, should the, should the agency or some independent commission every X years be asked, are we asking the right questions? Um, it's reminding me of a book that uh, Mark Landy and others wrote about uh, 30 years ago called EPA Asking the Wrong Questions, uh, which is essentially saying... EPA has been focused on the wrong things, but how would how would EPA how would that be incorporated into EPA's uh, own thinking? One of the few times that EPA uh, itself decidedly tried to uh, question its own questions was in um, the 1987 unfinished business report and the 1990 reducing risks report, which in which EPA essentially said to itself and to anyone who wanted to listen. We've been putting too much emphasis on hazardous waste cleanup. We should be putting more emphasis on global climate change, and some other, and, and other issues. Um, but and that meets again Joe's point that well, if Congress told EPA this is what you should do, so you know I guess a question about framing the question is um, what if the agency recognizes that the question should be framed differently? So it which it doesn't always do, but sometimes it's self-conscious enough to think that through, uh, and yet it finds that it lacks the legal authority to address the better question. You know, so am I thinking along the same lines that you are asking, yeah, or is that uh, a different? Uh, I, don't know the answer. <laughs> I, just, I just think uh, one of the things I want to evaluate adaptive processes would be to, if you caught in a rut and you keep as, asking right. Over and over Right. I mean, <clears throat> if I could conjecture a recent example, which seems like it it uh, fits what you're saying, but it might I might be wrong about it, is um, <clears throat> I think that um, when Angus Deaton and Anne Case published uh, death rates by cause of death and for age categories, they they recategorized the data differently than the way the Centers for Disease Control had been, and they highlighted the very large increase in, um, I think, what the CDC calls poisoning deaths uh, in um, in middle income white people, uh, which is, we would now call the opioid crisis. And but they what they part of the point, as I recall, maybe you can correct me, but was of their uh, of the Deaton and Case analysis was that the CDC was not asking the right question, was not thinking about this as a <clears throat> cohesive problem because it had divided the age categories and the demographic categories and the cause of death categories differently, and so it hadn't put together <clears throat> um, 
So that's a, that might be an example in which the CDC does have the full legal authority to update its approach and rethink, reframe the question. And it may not have the full legal authority to remedy the opioid crisis, but at least to, um, to rethink it. So that's also a, suggests a, a role for academics can often be to prod a government body to rethink the question. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you so much, and I would love to follow up with you also and, and, and hear more because I, uh, I can tell that you have um, extensive expertise on some of these questions. The uh, one small footnote, the Chevron doctrine that I was referring to is just the name of a Supreme Court case that happens to have the Chevron Corporation as one of the parties to the, to the case. But um, the more important points that you are <clears throat> 
raising, um, yes, we did. Uh, one question is, um, if there's a process to prepare to learn from a crisis, uh, how how well does it actually teach the right lessons? Or if we then, we for that and also for planned adaptive regulation, we might also want to add a meta-adaptive uh, layer, which says how well is the learning process working over time. Um, which is a function of the safety culture. And, of the right. And then... And then to, to your point, one feature we noticed in the, in the chapter in our book on the NTSB, we also looked at the CSB, the Chemical Safety Board, and we... Which is in disarray. Exactly. We found the CSB not working very well, and there are several reasons for that. I'll just mention one right now, and I'm sure you know more about this, but one is that in the NTSB, the industry that the NTSB investigates shares what it calls a community of fate with the regulators. That is, that the aviation industry also wants to avoid accidents uh, because they, they uh, suffer substantial revenue losses every time there's an airplane accident. Pa consumers uh, decrease their um, commercial fl flights. But in the chemical industry, it's less clear that the chemical manufacturing industry uh, suffers uh, revenue losses when there's an accident because the, their consumers are other industry. The general public doesn't know which com chemical company made which products. And one, reason, one result of that, perhaps other things as well, is much less cooperation between the chemical industry and the CSB as compared to the aviation industry and the NTSB. So that, mean, that also meant that the CSB had much uh, a thinner data uh, uh, source of data to make its recommendations. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and there's powerful, powerful trade associations in aviation as well. But um, okay. So, all excellent points, and that that speaks to the not only the safety culture in the industry, but the um, the culture of data sharing for the learning. Whatever institution is asking is asked to help with the learning process needs to have some way of uh, of, of uh, getting credible data. So, um, so thank you. So thank so you all. Before we wrap up, thank you. Thank you.